0: Welcome to another edition of the Beervana Podcast. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Suddenly, the sun is out.
1: Yeah, which is different than when we walked over to get a burrito before this podcast <laughs> That's got right. That's totally the, drenched.
0: The pre-pod, the pre-pod burrito was, uh, burrito was, uh, was quite wet. Uh, as always, with me is uh, Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible, from Workman Publishing, out now. Get your copy. Uh, Cider Man Simple from Chronicle Publishing, out now. Get your copy. Uh, you find him blogging at Beervana and at All About
1: Beer Magazine. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor uh, of economics at Oregon State University, and a research fellow at various uh, esteemed international uh, research facilities. <laughs> That's <something>, right, uh, <laughs> in uh, Sao Paulo and Germany, and he uh, blogs and tweets at at uh, beeronomics.
0: That's right. I didn't mention your 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 tweet oh, at, well. at beervana. Just yeah. put an at in front of it, and you're you're good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Uh, uh, today's pod, after a bit of a break, uh, by the way, um, you had a tooth extracted, I which did. interfered with the pod schedule. How dare you?
1: That's what happens when you're a writer. You're so poor, you just, your teeth just <laughs> fall out of your head. Yeah,
0: I, could, I could have done that for you, probably a lot cheaper than, uh, than the dentist. Um, uh, we're going to talk about uh, one of the most trendy of beer trends today, uh, barrel aging of beers. actually something that was suggested by a listener.
1: That's right. Uh, our cool Russian correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, made, it, made this request. You might have remembered us talking about uh, his email. And uh, he went some uh, back and forth and he said, you should do something on barrel aging. And I thought, damn, that's a good idea. That's so, right. Yeah, that's so don't,
0: don't hesitate to write in and give suggestions. And we're, we're, we're responsive. So we'll touch on everything from bourbon-aged stouts to wild bar- barrel aging. Uh, get into the different types of barrels and how they're treated. Generally, reveal the science and alchemy at play when you let beer age on wood yes we will so a action-packed pod today uh but as always first the news the, the news is next uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really? that's a little inside joke for you uh, oregon public broadcasting that, listeners that's right <laughs> actually it's probably like all the all the public broadcasters uh
1: we really need a music cue there someday yeah, that's right. Send us your music cues if you have any, musicians <laughs> out there. That's legal, free and legal.
0: So the first, the first, the first news bit I suggested today uh, because I thought this was interesting, given that we are creating a pod that's us talking basically. Which is, it turns out, if I always think of Oregon as sort of West Coast, laid back, easy going, not so stressed, people have got time, relaxed. Turns out that uh, Oregon. Oregonians are the fastest talkers in the nation, according to one study, which looked at a bunch of uh, software that analyzed call recordings to determine things like rate of speech, density of speech, hold time, silences. Uh, on something like four million is one of these big data things, um, and uh, we came out on top. That was a big surprise.
1: It didn't surprise me at all. I mean, we talked pretty fast here. I, I notice it all the time.
0: Yeah, I think. I, I mean, it, when, when I think about how we talk, I don't think we talk that fast, but I guess we talk a little bit fast. It's not. I mean, it's something that's fun. Anyway, <laughs> it, made, it made me think. It made me think of uh, uh,
1: comic stylings. Yeah,
0: thing. that's pretty good. Uh, of our of our far far flung listeners, because being a uh, 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 a a, uh, non-native speaker and living in different countries like India and uh, Brazil that I have, Uh, I know how hard it is to understand people who talk very quickly when you're just getting started. Uh, And I never think of Oregonians as fast talkers, but I went back and listened to us talking on the pod, and I listened to myself, and I thought, you know what? Actually, I do kind of talk fast. Uh, So I'll endeavor to slow
1: down <laughs> NPR, npr voices only <laughs> that's even, right. even and and smooth uh well i think one thing we could throw in here is who what is an oregonian we're almost all expats so that's partly part of it uh, yeah places like the south people don't immigrate in as much as they do but
0: i tend to think of well yeah i guess it's partly native i mean is it is it nature and nurture do, do you adapt to the mm. to the local patois or is it something that is your cadence something that you've developed from youth and then it's stuck by the time you're an adult, I wonder.
1: Linguists will have to make a study of it.
0: I know that I talk fast in class. My students will tell me so, and I tell them to stop me and slow me down because I'll just get going, mm-hmm. and I'll start lecturing very fast. Uh, so I know that's true. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's something actually to keep in mind as we as we, uh, as we listen to the pod. Hopefully that we are intelligible. Um, I know that uh, we have listeners far-flung. Apparently, you are big in Johannesburg. So.
1: <laughs> and obviously, Russia. We're doing all right. We're doing all right in Russia.
0: By the way, Russia, today's for you. That's right. <laughs> all right, what else do we have in the news?
1: All right, well, we have three other items that we can clip through pretty fast. I don't think they require a bunch of uh, analysis, but um, they're interesting. Uh, we had another kind of merger, uh, Victory Brewing, which is... Uh, in Pennsylvania is, a, is an old and, and venerable craft brand um, is uh, joining New York Southern Tier uh, in a kind of collaborative partnership, and that's being done under uh, uh, what's it? What do you call it? Uh, private equity. Uh, so,
0: do, do you know where Southern Tier is located?
1: No, I just know that it's in New York. Yeah,
0: uh, well, I used to live in the Southern Tier, which is when I lived in Ithaca, New York. We were at the bottom of the Finger Lakes in the Southern Tier. They uh, called it uh so like binghamton that
1: area yeah. uh so i was just curious yeah i don't know so anyway that's another we'll probably have one of those each time uh, cuz consolidation is happening uh while we're on business let's let's uh talk about uh in in boston uh, a uh distributor called craft brewers guild was caught by the uh local regulatory agency there um doing pay to play so they were going to retailers and saying if you put our beer on we will we will give you money Ah. And it was actually a local uh craft brewer corruption and craft beer yeah corruption craft beer awesome and and, um the state cracked down on them and we're going to suspend them for 90 days uh which would have been catastrophic because i think one thing that people don't realize is that when you when a brewery signs up with a distributor they it's a it's a binding contract and they can't leave the distributor Unless somebody buys their contract out hmm. but this would have been this would have given uh, breweries an opportunity to leave that distributor, and they probably all would have done it because you can't be out of business for three months yeah and so that distributor would have gone out for three months so uh, this week they uh, agreed to pay two point six million dollars in restitution to avoid the ninety day suspension
0: interesting so, so this so, is this is you know uh uh, allow me indulge me a little bit of an economics break here for a second. Which Absolutely. is, this is the kind of thing that happens when you have um, these kind of when you create these kind of monopoly markets, or uh, or you, you diminish competition through mm-hmm. this type of structure. So all of a sudden you get uh, doorkeep, you know, uh, gatekeepers, I guess. Um, and then there's all all kinds of opportunities to do what we call rent seeking, which is exactly this: like trying to trying to profit off the fact that you have uh you have a limited number of outlets so uh to as an economist it's not terribly surprising that that this happens um what's interesting is imagine a case in which there's no distributors and you're a brewer and you want to get tap handles well one thing you can do is just say look i'll give you my beer at twenty dollars less a barrel right now or, or keg what what's what's the difference right you know so it's interesting it's you know in in some ways uh in, in the for, in the former it's it's corruption and it's graft and it's uh uh pay to play and then the and in the second scenario it's just competition it's just uh lowering cost of competition so yeah. uh, the difference is that uh, and, and we make a distinction in corruption and you econ- can in economics when we study this um we call this sort of um Two, there's two types of corruption. One, which is the first type, which actually adds cost. Mm-hmm. So if you were a customer, um, uh, you could potentially, you're potentially just adding a cost. There's rent seeking that's going on. That's just adding to the total cost in the industry. The second one is sort of a way that you, uh, another type of corruption that gets, gets around red tape. So, you know, imagine yourself in some bureaucracy in India, for example, to give a personal example, and a little money can sort of get you out of some of the red tape. And that's actually, in in economics terms, often more efficient, uh, because often the bureaucracy is just a cost that doesn't really need to be there. So right. there's some corruption that actually ends ends up getting a society better off. So uh, Okay, so I've, you've indulged me too much already, so let's go on.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing, and I think at some point we were going to want to maybe do a, an entire podcast on... Uh, Beer distributors, because as as the market gets uh, more competitive and we see more consolidation at the top, um, Anheuser-Busch, uh, InBev has already talked about putting the screws to the to their distributors to exclude breweries, and that's mm-hmm. going to change this. So there's a lot of opportunity for discussion there. It's one of those hidden uh, movers of of the beer that we receive. So yeah, and for those
0: question. in different parts of the world <laughs> having tied relationships with breweries. Is often a very common thing. Um, it's very yeah. uh, common in Brazil, for example, a particular bar, a particular restaurant only serves one brand of beer because they have a tied relationship, a contractual relationship with that brewery. So uh, in England, of course, breweries operate their own pubs and things. So um, it's a little bit different here in the US, but there you go.
1: There you go. So we'll talk more about that for sure down the road. Uh, The last point, this will come as real uh, pleasure to people uh, who love this, remember this beer and and loved it. Um, Rodenbach is going to reintroduce their beloved cherry version uh, Mm. called Alexander, which was last brewed in the year 2000. And people like me have pined for it for... Uh, Sixteen years. Wow! So this is uh, basically just the Grand Cru, uh-huh. um, and it's aged on cherry, and it's really—it's uh, a really wonderful, wonderful beer. The cherry, as you can imagine, we tasted this beer not not so long ago for a podcast. Uh, harmonizes perfectly with those flavors that are in the native beer. So. I can—I
0: can imagine. I'd, I've never had it, and I look forward greatly to trying it.
1: Yeah. So everybody. Can get excited about Rodenbach's Alexander, which is back again at long last.
0: Uh, is it? Oh, you have it here coming back in April. April, yeah. So, so a couple of months. By the time you listen to yeah. this, you'll be almost ready to go get some. Right. Awesome. Okay, so let's switch to our main topic today, which is barrel-aged beer.
1: Yeah, let's talk about barrel-aged beer.
0: Um, how do you want to get started? Let's talk about the...
1: Yeah, let's, start, let, let's talk about how so be, so uh, wood let's let's start with a little historical kind of um overview because the current trend towards barrel aging is a a readoption of a very old uh uh process because before there was steel there was only wood yeah i was
0: about to say uh back in the day back in the day <laughs> <laughs> uh all beer was was stored in wood and yeah. transported and served From wood, right, Um, and so in a way, this is just back, back to the future,
1: right? Um, They they were they were fermented in wood. They were delivered to pubs in wood. They were served off wood, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they were aged in wood. So their wood was used for everything, and beer didn't always spend a lot of time in wood. But um, they were uh, uh, that was that was the technology. So Mm -hmm. obviously. It makes a lot of sense to switch to steel steel is lighter it's more durable it, you know it doesn't infect your beer <laughs> there's like, there's lot, it's not a lot, lot more predictable yes it's a lot more predictable so um beginning around the the turn of the 20th century um wood started phasing out and uh um then over the course of the 20th century steel almost entirely replaced wood except for in a few weird breweries where the process required Uh, barrel aging
0: yeah and so in 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 we'll get to this um but in a lot of modern uh barrel aging is done in in used barrels that have already the flavors of bourbon and wine and things like that but in the original uh uh utilage um breweries in fact uh, and I think you'll talk more about this. But in fact, when you visited the the sort of blast from the past brewery, they've talked about a couple of times, and um, Sam Smiths and Tadcaster England, they still have their own cooperage there, and they have yeah. a they have a full time cooper on staff who's there making and repairing barrels because they still they still put their beer in barrels and transport it in barrels and still <laughs> to the local pubs in horse drawn horse drawn carriages. But so, what is it that wood? Uh, what does wood do to beer? um just from a uh, version barrel.
1: Yeah, well let's let's uh let's let's talk about let's use Sam Smith's. I think it's a great example of the way brewing it, we have this one little window into what would have been standard practice mm-hmm. 100 uh, years ago. Um coopers, so every brewery would have had its own cooper, which you know like they had it at, uh, at at Tadcaster and um it was that was one of one of the most interesting things. They I don't know if you remember they had that uh that ceremony like you you're an apprentice uh um, Cooper and then once you like get your button they put you in a in one of the barrels the, one of the casks that you've done and I think they they put they put beer and hops in there <laughs> yes
0: yeah, so you're you're, yeah, you're sparking a, a distant memory but yeah that's right I remember uh, I remember talking about the initiation ceremony or the graduation ceremony that's correct right yeah. and, they, and they roll you around <laughs> they roll you around that's the part I remember <laughs>
1: yeah uh, and they had pictures on the wall of this this the the master Cooper there and it, from the '70s, like this process happened in the '70s yep. when there was still a bit of a, a Cooper's um, organization and Cooper's Union left. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's really it's really just a few breweries. I think there are a couple of other breweries in in England that still do this. Yeah. Um, one of the cool things that you just that you mentioned, and I we have a clip here from our our time when we visited. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, we went down into the basement under the brewery or the the cellar under the barrel under the brewery where they were uh, filling the, the wooden casks, and these are just, um, they're uh, a beer that the, we don't get here in America, but which is more common in, in England is their regular cask bitter, which they serve in these these barrels, uh, and they're delivered around to the uh, Sam Smith pubs around England, and um, they're not designed to impart flavor. They're merely a vessel. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, the uh, Steve Barrett, who was the brewer at the time, he has since retired, told us Uh, And so we said, you know, doesn't, because they're they're not giant casks. Um, These are much more, they're like the similar size to a keg. They're not the giant casks that you see. That's right. Um, So that means a lot of surface area, a lot of contact with wood. And it would seem to uh, be the case that that would impart a lot of woody flavors. And uh, Steve told us when uh, Cooper makes a new barrel, what they do. And this is a pretty cool little Process they have. So uh, this is how you cure a barrel and rob it of its woody notes. All right. Now they, you know, the casks for sure have an impact on on the the beer that we're putting in. Yeah. And so it's quite important that when when our cooper does any repair to an existing cask or or when he makes a new cask, that uh, he takes action to. To, to remove some of the oaky character, you're going to get from that new piece of wood, and so he'll do a process called hopping and salting, where he basically sticks a load of salt and a load of hop pellets and lets it stand for some time to try and draw out that oaky character or that that yeah the, the resins from the wood. Yeah. Um, it can be create quite an unpleasant um, you know over overpowering. Sure. Bet, yeah, the first cast would be almost undrinkable. Yes. Yeah. yes,
0: absolutely. And of course you can hear the, uh, the barrels being moved around and, uh, and loaded and unloaded and, and filled in the background.
1: Yeah. So there you go, everybody. If you want to build your own barrel and you wonder how to cure it before you use it... Uh, salt and hops. Salt and hops. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, that's right. It's funny. I, I, I'd forgotten about that conversation, but um, that brought it all back.
1: Yeah. Uh, so... This is a this was the the history the context was um wood was wood was a thing you had to deal with it, deal with um when it wasn't the main point when it was just a uh, a vessel to hold things right you're trying to neutralize it but that's not how people are using wood now now they're um this is a really old way to think about wood and, and now when people use wood they're trying to add uh flavor into the the beer right. so that's what we're principally concerned with so maybe we should move to what what happens uh when you use a barrel and yeah. how, how the uh uh modern kind of breweries use it um let's start with the bourbon barrel tradition which okay this year in the united states we have in front of us uh one of the oldest uh, it, it may be the first um brewery and the first beauty uh use the uh, bourbon barrel in the production of the beer, Uh, but if it's not the first, it's one of the very first. Mm -hmm. It's Goose Island's uh, Bourbon County Stout, and this goes back to 1992 that they first started uh, doing this this thing, this process.
0: Right, and what we have here is a uh, 2012 version.
1: Oh, wow, that's been in my basement a long time. So it's nicely aged. Wow, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Or Uh,
0: or maybe too nicely aged, we'll find out.
1: Yeah, the, the cool thing about, and I think everybody realizes this, is when you use a bourbon barrel, those barrels uh are have been soaking in in liquor for years uh over, over ten years in many cases, and so they the the liquor gets soaked into the staves right and then when you put the beer on it uh osmosis happens and it it comes it's pulled back out of the uh the staves and enters the beer yeah so.
0: and to make bourbon and to call it bourbon it has to be aged in virgin white oak barrels so they can only use the barrels once Right, uh, which is I'm getting at my little economics interlude here yeah. uh, which means that there's a whole bunch of bourbon barrels out there uh, every year that um, are available to uh, use for other purposes and so it's sort of a natural uh, symbiosis I suppose with brewer- brewers who want to, to impart a bourbon flavor um, uh, to their beer Ooh, so Jeff has opened it and now he's pouring it it's not very effervescent anymore.
1: That's a blackhead, isn't it? But yeah, it sure is. Um, yeah, and uh, because of that weird rule that the bourbon distilleries can only use their barrels once, they're the main source of barrelage for many other industries, like sherry barrels and all the scot, the, the flinty scots. Pragmatic, mm. they just buy these barrels, so they don't have to do their own. So most scotch <laughs> is actually aged in bourbon barrels. So. Uh, and then, and then they're, so they're cheap because they're only, right. they can only be used once, uh, breweries realize, Hey, we should be using these. And I think one of the, the coolest things about this is, um, bourbon is a, is a native expression of the United States. It's a, it's an American flavor mm-hmm. that bur- bourbon whiskey doesn't taste like Scotch whiskey or Irish whiskey or Canadian whiskey. So, uh, when breweries first started doing this, they were creating an, an, a more indigenous expression. We had encountered in other things because of the introduction of bourbon into the beer it's like they're making little boiler makers here yeah
0: well you said this uh goose island started in 1992 and i definitely think about bourbon aged especially like big stouts imperial stouts bourbon aged uh stouts and porters um as something at least in oregon that was really big uh or maybe peaked uh, so big, but peaked about ten years ago. Like it seemed like about ten years ago, there that was the rage: is these bourbon barrel aged uh, beers. Do you think that it's uh, it's peaked elsewhere too, or is it still a a, a growing trend?
1: Yeah, I think it has. It's an interesting. These this kind of question is really difficult to mm. assess because it never was a these were never mass beers, right? So no. it was always only among the beer geeks. And when you read the blogs and the Twitter feeds and, uh, you know, the the rating sites, it does seem like the energy, the Beer Geek energy has shifted elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it could still be the case that these sell really well. I mean, for Ber- Bourbon County, is still an enormous seller. And, yeah. uh, they released it uh, earlier this year or late last year, recently anyway. Uh, and I remember when they released it, they were... You know, they uh, liquor stores were only getting a certain allotment, and they were all having to limit people. And it, it's just it, it sells out instantly.
0: Yeah, well, I have to say that is a, an exceptional uh, uh, example of the uh, variety. I'm, I, I suppose one reason I I'm so attuned to when it seemed to have peaked here is because it's actually not my favorite style. Um, mm. I find it a little overpowering to me. I'm pretty sensitive to that bourbon taste, and I often find it too much. Um, I'm also not super into giant beers
1: um i tend to like lighter beers this is a giant beer it is uh 15 percent alcohol yeah
0: and so there was a time in which it just seemed like you couldn't you couldn't get anything but these big beers um especially when you're going to like real beers beer snooty events um and so uh it wasn't always my 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 favorite i sort of appreciated the beers but didn't exactly enjoy them if that makes sense yeah uh um this one actually i I i'd say is it to me, maybe it's because it's been sitting in your in your basement for a few years, but it it's uh, much more well-rounded. I don't get overwhelmed by bourbon. Mm-hmm. In fact, I get a really nice vanilla uh, flavor off it.
1: Yeah, it, I think uh, this beer is brewed so strong. That yeah, I mean, that's partly, it's just treacle. <laughs> yeah. And it can really stand up to the bourbon. I think that's a yeah. big thing. Bourbon is uh, there for a while, up, up, up until about 10 years ago, people were putting everything on bourbon barrels, and they don't always work. Bourbon does not harmonized well with very many flavors
0: yeah i remember an oregon brewers festival years back where there was yeah bourbon barrel aged you know pilsner or something like that it's like crazy
1: (laughs) yeah there was i remember an ipa maybe that's what it is a bourbon ipa and it was just a catastrophe yes for obvious reasons one one thing i talked to a brewer uh and i don't i'm not entirely sure the ttb recognizes what's going on here but, (laughs) but um there's like something like uh one or two percent this contributes like one or two or percent to the to the overall alcohol, alcohol content. content Yeah. so if you, if you start out with an eight percent beer you're probably gonna end up with something like a 10 percent beer according to this brewer i talked wow.
0: to wow that's a lot
1: which is a lot which means that's just like pouring bottles of liquor into your beer which yeah. probably well i don't know how kosher that would be but um it's not just a hint it's you know it's not yeah uh, it's not a subtle thing you're getting uh you're extracting a, a ton of flavor here um so that's that's the way that this is being used in modern uh, craft brewing. And, and, and this, ha- this is happening in other countries too. I know uh, in the UK they're able to get scotch barrels, so there's some scotch uh, barrel-aged beers there. And those are, are these
0: gorgeous. mostly uh, there as well as in the US? Uh, we talked about catastrophes from pale ales, but are, th- are these mostly the dark uh, beers with dark roasts? Is that what te- tends to harmonize best with the bourbon in your mind?
1: yeah i think so um I, I think there there one beer that I was considering pulling out here is a uh, uh a barrel aged uh doppelbach that mm-hmm. i had that came it's called deliverator and it's from a brewery called delivery and I was sent that beer to to review for all about beer uh and it's a doppelbach and i remember way 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 back when uh, widmer brothers did a a, a bourbon barrel aged doppelbock it's one of the first barrel aged beers i'd had and uh it works really well with those so those are not so much roasty but it's just the the thick malty kind of boozy quality it, it works really well so yeah there, there's certainly a few different Styles of beer that, that bourbon works well with, right? Um,
0: but it needs to have a, a substantial enough base to counter the alcohol, and then and then a fairly robust flavor to 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 balance the bourbon flavor, which can be quite sharp and might at least to my tongue.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, this is so. This is fifteen percent alcohol. This is a thirty proof uh, <laughs> tipple we have here, and it's. Um, it's quite sweet. I mean, these things are always sweet. Bourbon is is uh, made. You know, it's got to have more than fifty percent corn in the in the mash in the right. wash, and so it's it's always a sweet um, liquor. Yeah, and you add that to to beer, it's going to make it even sweeter. And sweetness is a challenge with beer. You don't want your beer to be too sweet. So right. In this case, uh, I think there's two balancing elements in Bourbon County. You've got the 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 roastiness of the the dark malt mm-hmm. uh, but you also have the alcohol itself is kind of a balancer it, Yeah, it's so strong and this is really boozy to my my palate it, it's it's now three or four years old I'm not sure if 2012 vintages means that it was bottled down I'm not sure what that means but right. it, it's right, at right. this point years old so those roasty notes are starting to fall back a little bit yeah. so it's probably even sweeter than it was when it was first done um, but it's it's really boozy mm-hmm. it's, it's like a it it for me it really has the quality of uh of liquor you know it um it's really strong like that but it's got the the harmony between that that sweet vanilla note and the the roast there's a little kind of quality of port maybe that's in there too mm-hmm. um yeah so. it's very yeah it's
0: just a very thick and well it's 15 percent so it's it's a big big beer
1: <laughs> yeah so this is one technique that people use for barrel aging, and uh, breweries now have uh, access to cognac barrels and uh, uh, um, gin barrels. So we're starting to see gin is an interesting thing. It works very differently than than bourbon mm-hmm. because uh, gin is has got uh, the botan- botanicals in it. Right. So those pick up different flavors. I know Upright here in Portland uses gin a lot uh, with their more Belgian uh Alex Ganum's Belgian approach so right. the kind of spicy notes harmonize with his uh farmhousey beers right. so that gives you a whole another palette to play with and um uh and then uh another whole range is uh wine barrels right which we have another beer here
0: yeah uh, and in Oregon uh there's quite a big and growing even st- still growing wine industry um so there are lots and, and pinot is the big pinot noir is the big grape around here so there tends to be lots and lots of pinot barrels right. and and I, i'm starting to see more and more brewers experiment with those barrels so what yeah. do we have
1: so we have uh jubel uh 2015 which was a special beer that uh uh the shoots brewery made yeah uh, it's an anniversary beer uh i think it's because i did Jubal 2000 and they did Jubal 2010 and there's a Jubal 2015. Mm -hmm. um and it's been aged in pinot and uh oregon oak which i think just means new oregon oak uh i don't know if it says on here but um one thing that's that's interesting is the difference between the way a a bourbon barrel and a wine barrel are treated Mm -hmm. bourbon barrels are uh charred so they if you can go online. It's pretty cool if you're right. interested and see videos of uh, the, the charring of bourbon barrels. They just put flame in there, and it's right. like catching on fire, basically. Yeah. And when you look in, inside afterwards, it's, it's charred. It's like charcoal on the inside. Um, wine barrels have different levels of toast, and these create flavors in wine that vintners are really looking for. So you have uh, uh, light, medium, medium plus, and heavy uh, toast. <laughs> and the process does something different um there are the 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 wood has i have this in front of me this is not just off the top of my head not <laughs> this mark. um has various things like lignin cellulose hemicellulose uh and other other compounds that when uh heat is applied it changes it so lignin for example breaks down into vanillin which mm-hmm. is that vanilla flavor yeah. so it, it it has that kind of um uh, sweet flavor. Um, if you go further along towards the heavy toast, um, there are volatile phenols like guayacol that get broken down and they release, um, a f- that smoky flavor. Guayacol uh-huh. is a flavor that is produced in, uh, Bavarian wheat beers. So that clovey thing, Oh uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a phenolic called guayacol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, so it, it produces that. So if you have a light, uh, Toast, it's going to give you um, a milder quality. The medium and medium plus is when you're getting into that vanilla kind of quality. And then when you get to the heavy, you're getting into smoke uh, and black pepper and that kind of stuff. So that that will also affect the way uh, it, it, if you're using new American wood. And sometimes right. breweries have been going that way uh, and using them like wine barrels, uh, right. buying new, new, uh, new barrels. And they usually only get that quality... For the first turn or two, Uh Uh, and then after that, it becomes neutral, and it's just they just get the quality.
0: So when you say toasted, you mean they heat the insides rather than actually char the insides. Yeah, exactly,
1: and it makes it golden. And if you right, you can also there's also videos of this, which is pretty cool. (laughs) And um, and then you can see the photos before and after. The uh, toasted stuff just looks like. it's kind of like a marshmallow toast. You know, it's, it's more golden right. more golden and darker and darker. And then the, the chard is actually burned. Right. And you can see that it looks like charcoal. Uh, so, uh, so there's those qualities. And then there's also um, the different uh, types of wood, mm-hmm. uh, whether it comes from France, the United States, or Hungary. These are kind of the three big places. Uh-huh. They're very different qualities. Um, American oak is usually disparaged by... The French, because well, of course, it, of course, <laughs> uh, because it is, um, it has, it's it's stronger and it gives a much more woody flavor, and the French is much more um, gentle and and gives a softer flavor. But of course, but the French, it must be better, exactly right. So they they always think of theirs as more elegant, and and the Hungarian kind of falls in, in between there. <laughs> um, so the American oak always gives you a more assertive flavor. Mm-hmm. So. Um, when, when brewers use it, when they use new American oak, like, uh, uh, Jubal it appears to have done here.
0: While you're talking, let me open the Jubal.
1: You'll get the woody quality. Uh, and then when you use, uh, <laughs> Hey, that's going to make that taste metallic. Uh, oops.
0: <laughs> I just um, dropped the Jubal, uh, yep. bottle cap into the, uh, bourbon County uh, glass. Uh, apologies. That
1: was a, an unforced error. That was. Uh, so when you get the, uh, uh, wine barrels, then you're not getting so much of the, the wood quality, you're getting the wine quality and, uh, you're pulling off the Pinot just the same way you get the liquor. So we're going to look for that. The, uh, Jubal is. Yeah. Explain what the, the base root beer is. So this is a, a, Jubal is their winter ale. And when they have done these specialty versions, the Jubal 2000, 2010 and 2015, they, they made them higher alcohol. This is over 10%. Um, yeah, it's but pretty, it's it's pretty a, dark. It's a dark beer, but it's not a it's not a super roasty beer. Right. Uh, so it's more sweet. It's malty. It's kind of like an, sort of like a Doppelbach, but an ale. Really, is sort of the base beer. Mm. And
0: oh, you definitely can you get the pinot. You definitely taste the pinot. Yeah.
1: So pinot is hard to work with. I think breweries have had a hard time figuring it out because it it really tracks as sweet. Yeah. Uh, even more than the bourbon. Um, and it and it doesn't give such a definite flavor. So That's right. It has sweetness without. 'Cause the beer is much stronger flavored and the delicate Pinot can be lost. The quality is a little bit hard to work with.
0: Yeah, they are delicate flavours, so I can imagine.
1: Hmm. That is a little bit roasty, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's kinda nice. Yeah, I like that a lot.
0: Yeah, it's uh um it's interesting because you can you can taste the Jubal, sort of the winter ale, the spice, a little bit.
1: There's some tannins in there that I think must come from the the American oak yeah so tannin is a I don't know what it is a polyphenol or some kind of compound mm-hmm. but it it, it um, it's kind of a drying uh, bitter quality it's you get tannins in uh, the skins of apples and uh, grapes and yeah. you get it in cherry pits and you get tea has tannins
0: yeah there seem to be three distinct elements there that the Jubal beer itself. Uh, the pinot that's coming off the barrel, but then the barrel itself presents the wood is definitely present. Right. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. We have a quote here, uh, another quote from um, uh, Jean Van Roy from Cantillon. And he, it, w- when I visited, he talked a little bit about the different barrels. One thing that, uh, most of these breweries will do, I am i don't know how they did Jubal, but I would almost bet my life that they do blending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that they do that with Bourbon County. So they will look for a palette that they're trying to get and then uh, go through all the different barrels they have and try to construct that because each barrel will contribute different flavors. Right. They have a different ecosystem. They just do weird or d- different stuff. Uh, and And part of that can be the quality of the wood um, some of these old barrels when they when breweries get these barrels from bourbon distilleries or wineries uh, they can be fairly old and sometimes the staves are not in good shape mm-hmm. so that 'll let more air in which will give an oxidative quality which which is great in a in a uh, a beer like the bourbon county because it gives it that kind of sherry port note that we were picking up yeah but it can all if it if it lets in too much, it may give you a flat kind of really oxidized things so you need to blend that out yeah
0: that's what I, I mean I have to say that that's that's the impression I came away uh mostly mm-hmm. my experiences with brewers has been tagging along with you and different things um and I never really thought much about barrel aging until I went and visited these places with you that have a, you know a fairly uh, uh developed barrel age um uh program. And you realize that there's a whole new dimension to the brewer's art Mm -hmm. in these programs is that they become these master blenders as they have to sort of pick up the different flavors from each barrel and figure out how they want to incorporate them and to what degree. Uh, And you really appreciate that this is a whole different um, uh, art that they're practicing Um, because, you know, I, I guess maybe for a while I... I sort of thought about blending as you know a way to hide mistakes, and it must be some kind of you know it's just a a cheap <laughs> a cheap get around to being a being a mediocre brewer. But you realize no, no 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 for these for these programs it's just the wood is so unpredictable, and then to sort of understand from all of these this diverse uni, this this diverse uh, um, array of of barrels and flavors how how you want the beer to present, and so to. to to, to taste beers from people who are pretty are, are pretty exceptional at that and we have some good some some good examples locally uh is is wonderful cuz you can really sort of appreciate that that different but uh just as um skilled art
1: yeah and a cool thing about that is and we're this this will lead right into our our quote from, from okay. John is uh sometimes you can take what would normally you'd consider a, a a defective flavor, an objectionable flavor. Mm-hmm. But if you if you dilute it out enough, it will create just a hint and really add something. So mm-hmm. it's not that even that you're trying to hide it, so much as you can turn a negative flavor if you dilute it out far enough into something that adds a, a level of complexity and interest to an otherwise, uh, you know, would be a, a beer that would not have that kind of complexity. Yeah. In uh, in Jean's case, he's talking about uh, what some old wood in a barrel that he had did uh, and he uses the word plank which it was the first time i'd heard him anybody use that but it's a word i've used ever since then because it's that kind of quality of like really old wood that's uh-huh. kind of like not good wood but like 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 an old board you know, right kind of like that yeah and how he 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 was able to work with that so let, let's listen to him talk about plank in in his blending process. so uh jean van roy and cantillon he's at cantillon which is a lambic brewery okay. All the beers he makes will be aged in wood, and they will all go through a blending process. Right, and each barrel will be entirely different. So blending is a, a critical element for him. Yep. So that's a little background there. Let's okay. hear. Let's hear John. All right.
0: Yes, it's uh, and time to time uh, the the, the we 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 have we have actually uh, is a bit too uh, too woody, but a woody woody taste coming from old barrels. So uh, we have still some. Old balls in a, in the brewery, uh, which gave which gives some woody flavors, but a bit uh, old old plank. Oh, See, okay, uh, okay. Uh, there, there is another blender uh, with with such a, a typical a typical flavor, a typical taste. It's not a typical taste flavor for Cantillon So uh, this brings up an interesting question for me, uh, interesting to me at least, <laughs> which is um, there seems to be two uh, two Approaches, maybe it's not exactly the right term, but you have a, a brewery like Cantillon that wants sort of come up with a beer. Maybe it, the beer is not always the same, but they kind of have a general flavor profile they're looking for. And so they're looking to blend to a style that they've identified or to keep up that same kind of flavor, f- flavor profile. And then there's other uh, brewers, especially local ones that we've visited. We visited Nick Arsner, for example, down in Corvallis at Block 15, who's quite a magician. He's got this amazing. A uh, little Warren of uh, basement rooms where he's got barrels stacked all over the place, and to me, I, I feel like he's just creating all of these different flavors down there, and and sort of concocting lots of new beers that he's just sort of imagining from the from the different flavors he's tasting in his in his barrelage program. So, uh, yeah, I don't really know. if There's a question there, uh, just sort of a comment.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's right. I mean, uh, you know, Nick and an American uh brewery will they're much more experimental they're trying to figure out all these different things and my guess is uh and and the truth is we're already seeing a little bit of this with with nick is there's kind of a, a homing in on certain yeah certain beers that he wants to make every year and like finding that's fa- right. he's following the barrels to the beer and yeah. once he finds the beer he wants to recreate those beers
0: yeah that's true i suppose that's partly because we visited him quite early on and by now now he's sort of the, has kind of a stable of, sort of some classics that he's brewed and now you got to try to to recreate them at least in um in in the general sense
1: yeah uh going back to this Jubal, uh I, as i tasted i really am finding that um the woody note to be quite uh an important part of this beer and i'm, yeah. really, I'm super liking it I, it's probably worth mentioning uh very briefly that what's the you know what when you're tasting a beer what's the wood yeah what it, what, what is what, what when exactly is it the wood and other parts of things, um, so the tannin I'm getting the tannin in this one, the tannin is that astringency that tastes a little bit like um, if you have black tea mm-hmm. there's a, a quality that kind of dries out your mouth and mm-hmm. it's bitter and, and sharp that's those are all that's a, that's a tannic quality and you find it in wine it's a balancing element in wine and mm-hmm. and hard cider, so when you find something like that in here that's coming from the wood yep. we have talked about that vanilla that that mm-hmm. comes from the transmutation of the lignin <laughs> uh and thank you professor yes i know i i i of course got that offline yeah. I, you know online I, I i don't really actually know that but i read it online so it must be true um but you do but vanilla is, is something that when you have a woody beer yes uh, you can often just really taste the there's that's that's directly the the flavor of the wood itself right uh and then the more subtle ones, so it, it can be vanilla to butterscotch. Butterscotch is another way that presents itself, and that can be a little bit confusing because butterscotch is also a flavor you can sometimes find in bourbon. So which mm-hmm. one is it coming from? It's always not always so obvious. Um, and then if it's a darker roasted wood, which we don't know, you know, that even if this is uh, Oregon oak barrels, we don't know how it was treated or what whatever else was in there, but. Right. Um, You could, if it would, if it had been um, had a a heavy toast, you know, maybe we're getting smoky notes. Maybe it comes from that. But you're looking for those those witty things. Um, Yeah, that's what those. That's how they present themselves. Uh, So, there we go. Uh, Wine and bourbon, Um, and I mentioned briefly the way oxygen works Mm -hmm. Um, in these kinds of beers. uh, Oxygen mainly is an oxidative. element which is to say there is no biochemistry going on there there's no there's no uh yeast activity so right. these beers will go in to the barrel after they're completely fermented out right and so long as the uh cask itself doesn't contain living living creatures right then um it will just be uh the process of age will take over right. and and um the, the barrels wood barrels are porous so the oxygen comes in oxygen will um help degrade the, the the quality of beer which is normally something you don't want but very strong beers um, and in beers like this it will create that 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 feeling that quality of, of like refinement the sherry the port that right stuff right so and that and in that case the oxidative flavors are what they're actually going for so you're looking you're looking for those and then if, and then of course the if you've got um, liquor or wine in there you're trying to have those two things come together in a Seamless flavor palette, uh, so it doesn't taste like you just dump bourbon in there right before it went to bottle. Right, <laughs> and sometimes you'll taste beers like that, and, and uh, they taste like that. And I don't, I'm not a big fan of those. It's, yeah, they need to integrate a little bit.
0: That's right. Yeah, and and I've had plenty of those that just are, feel like getting walloped over the head by a bourbon shot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think we're all getting tired of those. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, and it's interesting as 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 with any. Anything and almost everything in the in the sort of modern craft beer movement in the U.S., uh, you know, the the growth and the progress over the last 15 years has just been phenomenal. So it used to be that you'd find all kinds of barrel-aged beers that were wildly out of balance and sort of crazy and just experiments. These people didn't really, these brewers didn't have a whole lot of experience and they were just trying stuff out. But now you've really reached a, 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 a maturity level that generally you would only avoid those kinds of... Um, Uh, crazy out of balance beers and it's it's you know the consistency of quality is much higher now
1: yeah Yeah. uh so the last little thing that we have to talk about here the last uh kind of category of uh barrel aging is the wild beers
0: yeah we can't we can't uh we can't do a barrel age program without talking about the wild beers
1: (laughs) right (coughs) so in in the ones that we've talked about uh for the most part breweries are trying to get that neutral uh process with no chem no biochemistry going Mm -hmm. on but then there's this whole category of beers where the biochemistry is the whole ball game yeah and you put a beer in a in a a barrel and let uh mainly wild yeast Uh, by the time it goes in the barrel you want uh, uh activity so it's an oxygen rich environment so the that will uh Bacteria usually work best in, in uh, non oxygen environments, but right. yeast require oxygen, so mainly you're having yeast uh, activity. So mm-hmm. there are, uh, w- uh, historically, we talked about uh, Rodenbach. We have not done a lambic thing yet, a lambic pod. At some point, we're going to do a lambic pod for sure. Yes. That's super cool. Um, so if you have wild beer going in there, uh, you have a kind of a blend of different microorganisms that will be working. Right. Um, And then in in America, a lot of times uh, the breweries will actually add the wild yeast, so they'll add Brettanomyces usually, um, and then create create that activity themselves. Right. So these are all the different kinds of things that that you, the different kinds of ways people use wood. But the key there is that you've got uh, wild yeast. The presence of oxygen which wood affords you can't do that as well in steel because there's no wood there you can add you can you can get air in there Mm -hmm. but wood is wonderful because it provides a natural ready source of oxygen that goes in at a pretty even rate and a a rate that is good for the uh, good for the the environment and the ecosystem inside because you don't want too much oxygen or else those things get out of hand and then you end up with those really gnarly (laughs) kind of like gasoline beers which nobody likes (laughs) And if it doesn't get in there enough, then it just kind of is sluggish and it's wordy and uh, not so interesting. So you want that nice balance. And wood just naturally gives you that nice balance. So that's yeah. a good way to go.
0: And so, of course, the masters of this are the Belgians. Um, do the Belgians reuse barrels time and time again? How often do they?
1: Yeah, they do. Hmm. Really really loving that jubel. <laughs> uh, the, so the... Um, the, the lambic makers we talked about Rodenbach and the lambic makers um for the most part use bigger barrels than wine barrels bigger bigger and they're called fooders right. um and these things maybe 50 hectoliters to uh, 300 hectoliters so mm-hmm. uh, and a hectoliter is just a little bit smaller than a barrel so and a barrel is 31 gallons so you can kind of figure these things out they're they're big they're right. as big as a car sometimes yeah um and again those are useful in um kind of uh, regulating the oxygen permeability so uh the the different uh breweries will have different casks and they they do different things mm-hmm. um and y- environment has a lot to do with it so the uh, temperature of the air the uh humidity of the air mm-hmm. all these things will affect how much liquid gets in The i went to uh Goose Islands Barrel Room. When I was on my book tour last summer, and mm-hmm. they have this insanely giant new barrel room they built right. uh, with the Anheuser Busch money, and it is—I mean, it's a warehouse, and it just, it's just—it's—it's inconceivably large. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he said uh, I toured it with Brett Porter, who's an old Portland guy and kind of a friend of mine, and uh, so he took me over there, and we—I got to see this thing. And I think he said it was something like ten thousand barrels there. That's just an insane number of barrels and amazingly this was what really blew my mind so it's in chicago illinois right and you know chicago yeah. because you lived in madison wisconsin uh, it is unregulated so it's just a warehouse with no insulation no heating no cooling wow. so in the summer it gets chicago hot and in the winter it gets chicago cold man <laughs> they just let it roll and that's a that's you know that's part of their theory is we're going to let the environment be a part of the way This whole natural process happens. And it's going to be very different than it will be here in Portland, Mm -hmm. where the the swings are probably 60 degrees less severe. on both You know, if you could take both sides. Or even less, yeah. Yeah. So uh, all that stuff will have an effect. So if if Goose Island were set up in an identical uh, barrel house here in Portland, in a warehouse in Portland, and did it there and made these beers, they would taste different because of the environment. So that's all a factor. Uh, And they also have... They have the, the regular... They actually have two halves of their barrel house. The one that does the Bourbon County neutral stuff and then the wild side where they actually have stuff going on. And I, keep, have, I have no idea how they survived that summer. And it they, seems like it would just spoil the beer.
0: And they keep those segregated so the wild yeast don't...
1: Yeah. By a wall, there's a wall in between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wisely so. <laughs>
0: Disinfectant shower in between. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They can be... Because they really... And, it's, and they are dancing with the devil because it could be the case that they would uh, uh, get an infection on the wrong side and right. that, can, that can just be the trouble. Yeah. All so. right.
0: So I'm going to open up this next beer. Tell us what we have here.
1: That is the... Uh, I, I tried to listen to how to pronounce this. The Cuvée yeah. de Jacobin. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Something like that? Yeah. Your French is... Cuvée de Jacobin. Uh, this is... Rouge. This is a... a, a Flemish lambic. (laughs) They don't call it a lambic, but it's made the same way that a lambic is made. Um, It is spontaneously fermented. They don't. The reason they don't call it a lambic is because in 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 uh, in Belgium they observe the uh, the appellation of lambics, which must be made in a particular place. This is not made Uh, in that place, so they don't call it a lambic. Yeah, they call this a Flanders red. Yeah. So this is a different kind of Flanders red than we talked about before, because it is nat it is spontaneously fermented. I managed to get its cap safely.
0: Uh, to the table. Oh, good.
1: (laughs) And, uh, and then it's aged for 18 months in wood. So that's how it develops very much like a lambic. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a red as we, I see as you pour it out. So lambics are made with pale wheat and pale malts. And I think this is made with barley. I don't know that there's any wheat in it. Yeah. It's a beautiful red color. It really is.
0: Uh, it's got a nice head. It's fairly big, large bubbles. Um,
1: Kind of a a khaki-colored head. Mm-hmm. Mm. And these are the most interesting of all of the barrel-aged pro- projects because uh, each beer becomes a real ecosystem Ooh. with real with different uh, different buggies. So it takes
0: almost buggies. like water after these <laughs> other two beers. This one is a uh, a five point five percent, so it's actually quite a light beer and hmm. so after after the bourbon county it's uh it's almost an entirely different animal entirely.
1: It's true. It's in a way we probably should have started with that one. Yeah. <laughs> the first if, if if we ever thought ahead
0: when we did the pod we would right.
1: uh the yeah the first taste is just to clear out the palate, I guess.
0: Yes. Hmm.
1: Yeah these are uh these are just super fascinating beers yeah. so
0: when I think of you know when I think of these wild yeast and these sour beers what um, how do I put this you know obviously what hits you is the sour that's sort of the most noticeable thing but in what way am i am i uh, tasting the wood other than the yeast the wild yeast
1: you're not really tasting the wood here the yeah. wood is mainly the uh, it's a part of the ecosystem in, in that yeah. it allows the it, it, the the buggies live in it, and then it allows the oxygen to come in. Right, and what and and, it's, and one of the important things that happens during the slow fermentation process of Brettanomyces. So they'll go through a primary fermentation before it goes in there, but it will continue to slowly ferment with these wild yeasts. We have big ester production. So mm-hmm. esters are flavor and aroma compounds that taste uh, generally are described as fruity, um, and. Bretonomyces produces uh, this fruity quality. So when you get these wild beers, they're very dry because they continue to uh, ferment out. They ferment almost all the, the natural sugars. But they replace them with these esters, which have a, a quality of sweetness. So it, it helps balance it. Um, even though it's a very dry beer, you have a perception of sweetness. And you really get that, you really get that one here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's got an almost cherry sweetness.
0: Yeah, my um, my palate's I think been a little bit blown away, but because I'm the subtle flavors are are uh, quite subtle for me <laughs> in this mm. one.
1: It's it's pretty tart. So it's very tart. I'm yeah. sure you're getting the tart. Oh, it's tart. Yeah, tart. <laughs> that would be. I'm gonna have to send you to the doctor if you can't taste that tart. <laughs> well, I
0: also have a cold, so it's not helping. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: I'm really glad we're sharing glasses. Then, yeah. yeah. Thanks for Cheers. letting me know. Cheers, now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, Don't worry, I'm way past the infectious stage. Okay. Besides, it's all alcohol, so it's it's sterilizing everything. Don't you're adding about. your own, well, especially. I'm sure the Birmingham County. So.
1: That's true. That's true. And you're adding your own microflora to that. So exactly. All, so yeah, all very. Uh, <laughs> that's just a really delightfully awful thing, <laughs> way to think about it. But, well, with wild beer, you start to realize how everything is. Yeast and bacteria, and it's just, uh, it's a wild. Yeah,
0: I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely not one of the germophobes in general. So I, I'm quite comfortable with the fact that we live in just a germ-ridden stew in life, and it's all just different. We really do variety. So, yeah, really uh, do. this is a weird turn our barrel-aged beer discussion is taking. So, um yeah, the 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 barrels there don't really present themselves other than the the wild. The, the wild organisms which inhabit them, I imagine also because they're used so many times that even if there was any woodiness it's long on. For
1: yeah, that's right that's <laughs> right and, and they do. They, they, these big fooders uh, they'll eventually have to replace some staves as they rot. Um, but the, that process happens so long that, that um, you, you get decades out of these things. They're really they have uh. three inch staves and they're huge and right. um, so they're, they're really wonderful, durable vessels and then over that period of decades they get this microflora and and, uh, and they produce this wild wild wonderful beer
0: yeah yeah so uh it's interesting the sort of onset of barrel aged beers in the united states are interesting because of course they're not particularly uh cost effective i mean it's not the cheapest thing to do to get barrels to have your beer sitting uh Time is money, of course. Having beer just sitting around, storage takes space. Um, so, uh, I guess there's two comments there. One is you often pay a premium for barrel-aged beers, and that's a big part of why, because they're, it's part of the cost of the beer itself. Right. Uh, but the second is interesting that it, you know, there definitely had to be this. It's good that there was this demand that they became really popular, uh, because otherwise. Uh, if you know you were a brewer struggling to get by then it's not the obvious choice
1: yeah it's uh. definitely it, it uh, you know we've talked in the past the beer is a it's a mass product you need to you need to make a lot and sell a lot the margins are relatively low in yeah. order to have the profit uh support the the brewery mm-hmm. so these things you know except for in the case of of like the 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 Atlantic brewers uh for the most part they they constitute a small portion of the entire output of a brewery'cause yeah they're just. It's just not possible to make money.
0: Yeah, and I, I constantly talk about scale economies, and of course, there's still economies of scale in the brew, when you're actually brewing the, the base beer. But those economies go away when you're when you're stuffing all that beer into all these little barrels that have to get stacked and stored. And uh, so it's yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not I guess something for the faint of heart. If you're a if you're a new brewer or a new business person and you're trying to figure out how to how to uh, get by, it's 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 a risk.
1: It is. And as consumers, I, you know, I think I, I always argue that if a brewery has aged a beer uh, for a year or two, um, that we as consumers should be willing to pay more money. So when, when I go to the bottle shop and I see a bottle of beer that's $15, bucks, um, I'm really interested to know the process there. Because if that's just a, a forced uh, scarcity issue where the brewer has done a triple IPA, but he doesn't do very many triple IPAs, so uh-huh. he wants to charge $15, interesting that 's one thing, but if the guy if the brewery has spent two years making this in uh, an expensive pros- process has taken the brewer's art in blending and mm-hmm. shepherding all this through and makes a really quality product like this jubile twenty fifteen is a good example of a beer that I'd pay a lot of money for because that 's a rare and expensive thing to put together so so
0: that 's interesting The economist in me is is uh um I guess skeptical is not the right, but I mean it's it's just it's different. So the economist in me would say that it's all just about the beer itself. Like, is it good or is it bad? So if it's a good beer, even if it took you you know two weeks to to ferment and package and and you're done, uh, that's what should determine the price. But well, that, what you're saying is that it matters to you the process that goes that goes into it. I mean, obviously the process itself can add costs, so those that'll drive the price up anyway. But uh, you're more willing to pay. A higher price if you know.
1: Well, I think this is one of those. It's what the market will bear. Arguments. Yeah. And the market, if the market is stupid, the market will bear things. You know, unwisely. Mm-hmm. So what I would like to say is to the market, citizens of the market. Uh, yeah. You know, you should you should be able to distinguish this because if that brewery is just trying to make a, a mint off the fifteen dollar triple IPA, mm-hmm. uh, you should know that that he's making massive amounts of money on that bottle of beer like it didn't it didn't cost him very much money to make that relative to what he's selling it for he's just he's just asking you to value it at a high rate uh based on a subjective uh, judgment of goodness whereas um you know the Jubal, the the Jubal, and the bourbon county and the this Flame, all the th- these three beers that we had here today each one of those were really expensive to make and the profit margin on a bottle is much lower uh, so they so we should we should recognize that with our with our dollars and reward those people who are making good and expensive beers, and maybe spend less money on the other ones and, and try to help drive those costs down. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Okay. That's well, I can thing.
0: you know that's that's uh, I I understand your philosophy um, and there's actually some sort of economics in there in the sense that uh, you know efficient markets uh, require complete information, and so um, that requires that you know sort of what. Uh, what the product means to you and
1: um, for for the podcast audience I should say that when I was just speaking a moment ago the look on Patrick's face was one of, uh, <laughs> uh, of deep skepticism tinged with contempt for, <laughs> for, for my crude for my as he called it uh, sort of economic <laughs> well, crisis. So.
0: well uh, as an economist, of course, it's it's the market that, that determines the price, and so when you say a brewer wants to charge you this much, well, it's true. I mean, you, you put it you put a price out there, but it sells or it doesn't at that price. So when right. you say a brewer wants to charge fifteen bucks for a triple IPA, it's like, well, the brewer will, will charge it if the market will bear it. Um, so I guess that that was my that was my look of, of skepticism. Yes. Uh, what I would th- I speak pigeon
1: economically. but what,
0: no, but what I would say is that it's clear. I mean, barrel aging imparts very distinct. Uh, flavors that you can't get elsewhere. That's true. Like if AB could have figured out how to make a chemical and additive to a beer, that
1: <laughs> right?
0: Then, then you'd have all kinds of barrel age bud, barrel style bud. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, um, no, but I mean, it, it it imparts very, very unique flavor characteristics and profiles that you can't get in any other way, and and those are clearly um, something that. That consumers are willing to pay for, which is a good thing, because otherwise you wouldn't see barrelage It just wouldn't be cost effective. Yeah. Um, there wouldn't be any any uh, economics behind it.
1: I mean, I guess my argument is not one of economics at all. Now that now that you uh, no, but uh, but but
0: but so part of my expression is just that you know this is talking to beer people about beer prices is fascinating because it's not much about markets. It's that right. they take this stuff very seriously. Like, you know, are you? especially the beers that just get crazy priced, you know, like Pliny the Younger and stuff like,
1: which was in town yesterday, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, so. so it's too late <laughs> now. Sorry. Yeah. It,
1: uh, it comes on, they send a few kegs up here and then it, it's, it's poured and it's gone.
0: Yeah. So people get crazy about what's that price and like, you know, and is it, you know, the, the, you get into all kinds of things like the morality of these prices, and that, you know, and to an economist it's all just quite clear. There's there's a supply and there's a demand, and so for something like Pliny the Younger, they keep the supply down and the demand is huge, and boom, prices skyrocket. So, yeah. it's just the beauty of markets at work.
1: It is. I I just I I, I treasure these kinds of beers enough, and I know that. It, Brewers need to make money on them, and if, if the entire market gets skeptical about paying too much for a beer, these beers will all go away because they're too expensive. They can't be sold. That's right, and that's my
0: point about how they impart very specific flavor characteristics that you can't get in, uh, in any other way, and that clearly the market, at least for now, values them. And, right. and if there comes a time when the market gets tired of these flavors, then yeah, you know, they'll suffer. But this is also uh, one other uh, uh, point I wanted to, to make about prices, since we're talking about them now anyway which is you have to ration Pliny the Younger somehow, right? I mean, so think of the different ways you could ration Pliny the Younger. You could make everybody line up three days in advance uh, so that the f- people first in line. And so that's, you know, sure, that's one way you can ration beer. Um, but typically markets ration through prices. And so what you insure uh, by sort of the market Ration, rationing and I you're smiling already so here it comes uh is no, that the people who value plenty the younger the most are the ones who get plenty the younger
1: Yeah that's exactly right I mean I I think I think people would argue uh beer drinkers would argue there's nothing preventing the brewery from making more of this and if they made more of it then and it was more available they wouldn't need to sell as they like the market would be satisfied and then the demand would go down and then they couldn't charge yeah i had
0: a i had a reporter in fact call me about plenty of the younger this was a year ago or so um asking sort of getting exactly that like is it you know is it somehow beholden on the on the brewer to brew more because they know people want this or are they just doing it to to gouge the market and and my response is that i'm sure that if you did the economics they'd make a ton more money if they made a lot more of it. Hmm. So it's not that they're out just making money. Um you know the the prices get inflated, probably retailers do well. Uh it creates a it creates though a buzz and a cachet and we, we here we are yet again talking about plenty of the younger And that's
1: um, a I I'll defend them. I, I I just condemn them, I'll defend them on this side which it, 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 that that uh it is Breweries all over the country, or all over the world, and throughout history, have always done specialty beers. They do special beers once a year, whatever, mm-hmm. um, and they're often more expensive and rarer and uh, specialty beers. So that's like a that's an ancient brewing tradition. So I I, I begrudge Russian River nothing for for doing applying uh, to the younger. I don't. I, I, maybe they just want to do it once a year. That's fine. But yeah. it's a, it's an interesting thing. It doesn't. Aside from the brewing process, there's nothing that raises the cost. Uh, it's an expensive beer to make because it's got more ingredients, but, but not you know, that much. More, yeah, yeah. yeah And that's,
0: I mean, that's so that's what's interesting to me is because I just look at it as economists say, oh yeah, markets are working really well here. You know, it's rationing, the younger quite well, and the people who should get it do. Uh, the one thing I was expecting is we you, should
1: throw you into a, you were a, gonna, a mob of <laughs> beer geeks and have you say, well, yeah, no, I wouldn't, <laughs> I would not survive
0: because uh, I thought you were going to get, I, mean, I thought you were going to be all Bernie Sanders on me and talk about how it also uh, favors the wealthy. Which, ah. which is true. It is true, although... And, and there you have exactly the conundrum of markets, which is they are one, at once efficient, but have no, uh, there's nothing inherent in markets that ensure equity.
1: Although, you know, this is a fascinating thing, and, and since we're using Pliny the Younger, i I got to gotta, tell you the interesting story here. So Oregon is the only place outside of California that gets Pliny the Younger. Um, Washington used to get some Russian river, and they quit sending it up there, so we're really lucky. To do that. and we are they, the chosen. We are the chosen. And we have a really good relationship with uh, the, the, many of the, the pubs here have a good relationship with the brewery. So the brewery allots something like five, five, five kegs and they sh- send them up to various uh, pubs. And one of the cool things is they don't charge more money and they just sell the beer. So they were, this was, uh, Plenty of the Younger was at uh, Roscoe's yesterday. I didn't go, so maybe they did charge more. But in the past, I've done this at Roscoe's. Uh, which is this great pub on in sort of the outer east side? Um, it's great. It's great because it's outside the normal beer geek thing. Yeah, and I don't think they spent a lot of money or a lot, a lot of time promoting it. It was just they just had it on last night, and um, and you could go and, and if you got there on time and you were one of the first people there and you were able to get it, you got it and you paid your five bucks and you got plenty of the younger. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's just a nice tip of the hat to the fans, and it seems like that's kind of what Pliny and the Younger is doing. So yeah, props to them for that. Yeah. they're not. They're not. They're not gouging anybody for that. So. All right, we better move on to the mailbag yeah, because should. we got really fascinating times. We. I don't know if we're even going to go down that road but we did and it was interesting
0: yeah not planned but there's actually quite very little that's planned about this podcast which probably doesn't surprise our listeners that's right (laughs) that's how we end up running over every time every time
1: all right so the mailbag is pretty quick uh the first one comes from ted mcintyre and he sent this in maybe uh five weeks ago so its context well it's, it's better understood in that uh he asked um he uh was seen. Something called winter shandies in his grocery stores, and he wondered, Is this a thing? What's do you know anything about winter shandies? What's going on there? And my answer to you, Ted, is no, I have no idea what a winter shandy is. I think it's an invention of brewers I've never heard of it. Uh, they don't appear to have come to Oregon, so I'm not sure where Ted is. Uh, but I don't know anything about winter shandies. You know yeah, winter no, shandy? I know nothing about winter
0: shandies. I'm trying to, I'm sitting here trying to think of about what. A winter shandy would be if i were going to make something i wanted to call a winter shandy what would i do
1: i don't know uh, that seems like the mind of a market yeah
0: i yeah i i so well I'll explain what a shandy is just in case
1: a shandy is a a beer mixed with uh a, a non-alcoholic thing usually lemonade or or lemon lime soda something like that right so it's a um, it's usually a summer beauty that's a summer thing you have it yeah it's you know, light light, light, refreshing, light refreshing yeah a little
0: bit sweet uh so yeah at the, you know at, at the winter version of that it's hard for me to to decide you know maybe some ginger ale <laughs> and, and <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know. kind of a rye maybe a little rye in your beer some ginger ale yeah well, we'll come up with one there you go yeah all right somebody try that i think i think it's a bad idea. throw some rye in your beer and throw some ginger ale and see what <laughs> tell me tell me, how it, tell me how it comes out all right
1: sorry ted we're like uh yeah
0: sorry that's thank you for picking that question jeff that's
1: yeah well, well they nice for us to punt <laughs> they come <laughs> and we you know we, we show that we're uh we're, we're far from omniscient here okay it, it keeps it, it keeps, keeps us, us humble honest. yeah oh, that's right okay. Uh Kyle Navis writes, uh I always notice that China grows the third or fourth amount uh, largest amount of hops every year and I've heard that most of this goes to large brands like Qingdao and actually there's uh the biggest brand in the world is Snow. Snow. Yeah. Yes. Um so what he said, what what are Chinese hops? What's going on with Chinese hops? We don't hear about this. Um and then he he asked and and as you know to extend it, what about South Africa Russian beers um India, Colombia, Mexico, he names these other countries. Do these guys have their own hops that we don't know about? Um, The answer is a little bit. Um, China has uh, a hop called uh, Qingdao Flower, which I assume is made for that beer. Yeah, Um, one would. And it is grown in uh, uh, China, but it's actually uh, uh, just a U.S. cluster, an old American cluster. Style, Uh Um, and it is ninety percent of the the market in that's ninety percent of the hops grown in China. Is that
0: one? Is that one U.S.
1: cluster hop that's called Qingdao Flower? Qingdao Flower. Um, and the beers that they have in China are light lagers. So we're talking about incredibly tiny amounts of hop flavor that are going in there. So it right. kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, they have other things like Kirin flower, Marco Polo, and they also grow Nugget there. So that, that, there's that. Um And in, in, in uh, Russia, there's a uh, one called Sera Brianka, uh, which is a, a, a hop that's interesting because it's one of the parents of Cascade. Ah. so this is a russian like an old russian hop there are Mm -hmm. a few a few hops there's a a polish hop called lublin and there's there are some eastern european hops that we don't know about that are kind of old old varieties and Mm -hmm. this is a russian one so there are a few of them out there but for the most part um the 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 regular hop market provides hops for other countries so mexico is not growing their own hops they're buying hops off the hop market
0: yeah i mean both in both russia and the both the case of russia and china the you know the the latitudes are such that they have the same kind of long, long summer days that the hops like. So there's, it would seem to me there's nothing preventing them from creating large hop crops.
1: Um, yeah, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if the market continues to go the way it is here. Yeah. Um, people in uh, beer-drinking countries, as they develop their own craft beer industries yep. elsewhere, they're mm-hmm. going to look into growing their own hops. And we're yeah. going to start to see very cool hops coming from China and Russia and Poland and... Um, Mexico. Yeah, I think
0: there are I think there's a lot of hops that are being grown in um uh Brazil as well. Um or maybe maybe it's farther south than Argentina. I don't know, but um Right. Argentina
1: is l- probably far enough south that it's back in the band. Listeners,
0: listen to let us know and our and our huge following in Johannesburg can tell us about South African
1: hops. So please. Right. That one I found nothing on. Please. I looked that one up. Yeah, please let us there. know. I found nothing on South Africa. So yeah. All right. Well, that's the mailbag. Continue to send us uh, stuff for the mailbag. We love it, and um, I think they're interesting questions, like the the ones we just heard. Yeah,
0: and pod suggestions, like barrel aged beers, which is that's right. A pod topic for today. You and I are going to bre- brew uh, tomorrow. We are. And we haven't yet even discussed what we're, what we're brewing.
1: <laughs> we're we're gonna we we every year we try to do a uh, a, a crude form of old timey lager brewing where we leave the the uh, the carboy outside because temperate Oregon winters are pretty good for both fermentation and lagering. No, no, uh, they it's keep not alright it about the right temperature. It is
0: now March. So we're, we're getting <laughs> yeah. close to losing our window here.
1: So we're going to be close to losing our window and we're probably going to end up with a little fruity, fruitier version of a lager, but we're going to go for it no matter what, because yeah. it's home brewing. Who cares?
0: And, uh, Alan Taylor, our good friend at, um, the Zeigel house brewery here in Portland has, has given us a, a hot tip about how to improve our efficiency in the mash and i'm looking forward to trying yeah. his technique um you're gonna have to
1: remind me about that i remember he did but yeah i'm glad that you remember uh
0: he just said dump the water in first and then the grain
1: oh yeah that's right so we're
0: having an efficiency problem with our little brewing setup where we have a big false bottom and and we have a hard time circulating that water and so keep it Keep it a good temperature throughout,
1: uh, and, the, and the problem is that sometimes we have good efficiency and sometimes we don't. Yeah, that's a, so that really throws us off. If we just had, if it was always the same way, we could maybe improve it. But that's
0: right, and it might be time to the, maybe not this time around, but pretty soon we might have to try the old Parliament Hopadelic again, which is, of course, the my great white whale of a beer, my my super. Hoppy IPA.
1: Yeah. Since we're talking about homebrews, I've wondered if we should do a a podcast on homebrewing. So maybe the listening audience, if you're interested in homebrewing, we could talk about how easy and instructive it can be to homebrew. And then we could have a, uh, a, like, how you get set up on homebrew or, like, getting into homebrew. And um, if you're interested in that, let us know. And if we don't hear from you, we will assume that you have spoken. you <laughs> your silent. Yeah.
0: Well, I mentioned it now because um, we'll post the pod this afternoon, and uh, if you listen to the pod straight away, then you can quickly send your suggestions in about what we should brew. Oh, tomorrow. that's right. Tomorrow,
1: we're thinking of. Uh, we usually do a pilsner, um, which we call a Velvet Revolution, which my Czech friends say is super obvious and stupid, but
0: yeah. But Parliament Hopadelic, by the way, is trademarked, so don't steal that. That's right. Uh, which is which is super awesome. A Velvet Revolution is sweet.
1: <laughs> it is. It's a great beer. But um That's a great also, name. We could do a we could do a Schwarz beer, maybe a Bach. I don't know. We'll see. So yeah. Ooh. Suggest, make your suggestions. Ooh, Bach. I like that idea. Bach. Uh, okay. Uh recommendations of the week. Beer yep. Sherpa. I'm gonna say an obscure beer that no one's gonna have a chance to buy unless you live in Portland. Uh, but you should when you're in Portland, you should find this beer and buy it because it you is You really should. It's it's a it's a fantastic beer. And it's a, it's a beer that's on the bubble because it doesn't sell well because it's a weird beer. It's called uh, Billy the Mountain by Upright Brewing and it is an old ale. It's a barrel-aged old ale that is uh, made with uh, Brettanomyces. So it's made in the way that the old ales like at Gales and uh, Green King uh, used to make old ales back in the day. Uh, wild beer. Um, Brettanomyces was first cultured um, and when it was full, when myces was full, first cultured, it was cultured out of an old ale yeast, uh, old ale beer, um, by Clausen, who was at maybe some... I don't know, somewhere. Uh, anyway, and he called it Brettanomyces, the British fungus, because it came from a British uh, batch of beer. So this was used to be really traditional in England to have these kind of beers. And brewer Alex Ganoum has made what I think is one of the most impressive examples of this kind of beer. It's a it's a big, heavy, dark beer that. Um, has uh in it when it's bottled it's still fairly sweet mm-hmm. he bottles it still and he lets the natural carbonation take over as the Brett work on it and it gets drier and drier and drier so you can either drink it fresh or let it uh let it run for a few years and it is spectacular and everybody should buy it and make sure that alex wants to keep making it
0: <laughs> uh yeah i can attest to it's it's uh, exceptional uh character uh my my recommendation of the week uh, really the actual beer is is less important um I was just going to recommend uh, Cascade Brewing because they have uh, an amazing and one of the older uh, barrel aging uh, programs in Oregon. This is also a local beer, sorry, but I think it gets around a little bit farther. It does. Um, And Ron Gansberg, their little, uh, speaking of the art of blending, is is the magician who concocts this stuff. I'm going to pick Cascade apricot uh, ale because um, it's always good. But there are years when it is just simply transcendent. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I've never uh, tasted a better example of fruit and beer. Yeah, um, it, it's just it's absolutely sublime. So, uh, and I know he plays around a little bit with how he deals with the apricots. Or at least I understand from you he does. Um, uh, and it's uh, so it's a it's a it's a sour beer, but it's it's sort of lightly sour and it and it m- and it mingles with the apricot flavor in a way that just brings out the apricot beautifully without uh without sort of um uh making it either too sour or too sweet so it's 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 my recommendation. It's a
1: good one. I uh. endorse it
0: 100%. Okay, well, once again, thank you for uh wasting another hour in uh in, in this case 20 minutes. Oh, uh, no, sorry. <laughs> you yeah, ran That <laughs> seems to be our want these days. Uh with the Beervana with the Beervana podcast. A few words about how to get in touch. Jeff of course blogs at Beervana and at all about beer he tweets at at Brvana and uh, you can be in touch with him and therefore us uh, um, by uh, email. It's um, the underscore beeraxe at yahoo.com. Um, you can also go to the Beervana Facebook page uh, and post questions there as well.
1: that you can and you can find Patrick at uh, the Beervana or the beeronomics blog mm-hmm. and he tweets at at beeronomics.
0: That's right. Uh, okay, so what are you gonna? I guess I'm gonna grab what's in front of me, which is the uh, the cuvée de Jacobin
1: right. Rouge. I'm going for this Jubel, which is also in front of me because yeah. I've been sitting here. Yeah, there's not it. a lot left. <laughs> so I, I even had to pour some more out. All right, cheers, chef. Yeah, cheers. Ciao.